and welcome to the Real Weird Podcast. October 19th, Weird Wednesday number two. So yeah, we're doing another sampler episode this time. <clears throat> uh, first up, we've got The Witch Who Came From The Sea. Now this is less a standard horror, more a sort of psychological horror drama. And I think it often gets lumped in with horror just because, well, for one thing, just look this movie up on Letterboxd and take a look at the cover art. It's it's cool, but it's very misleading. It looks like something out of like a pulp fantasy uh, novel cover or some kind of like metal album. And I think it gave a um, impression of a much gorier and much more violent movie, which there is some violence. There is a fair amount of blood, but... It's not really that much, especially when you look at some of the others on this list. Uh, it's both a Video Nasties alum and an alum of Aero, of Arrow Video's American Horror Project, much like a lot of the ones in the last sampler episode. But yeah, for the Video Nasties, like I said, I think it might have just been the cover, or assuming any of them actually bothered to watch the movie when they were making the idea of this band. It might just be the fact that the... It's not sexual violence most of the time, but there's a lot of violence where the victim is usually naked, so it has a sort of it has a sort of sexual tone to it. I don't know. I people have tried to understand the logic behind a lot of the video nasties bands, and aside from animal cruelty and sexual violence, there isn't usually a lot of consistency. But anyway, getting to the movie itself, we've got our main character, Molly, uh, played by Millie Perkins of Diary of Anne Frank fame, as she goes on a little killing spree after taking a job as a waitress at a seaside bar somewhere in Venice Beach, California. And it's mostly like a bit of a, it's mostly a bit of a sort of character study in a way. She is, uh, you know trying to get along with her sister, Kathy. Both of them were horribly, horribly abused by their sea captain father when they were younger. But Kathy is more truthful about it. You know, she accepts the fact that he's dead, and she openly says that he was drunk and, abu- drunk and abusive. Molly has sort of blotted out a lot of the worst parts of the abuse that happened to her and kind of tells her two nephews very idealized stories about him. But as the story goes on, we do get more confirmation that Kathy's version of events is far truer, far more true to life. Molly, as it seems, has internalized this abuse and retreated into a sort of fantasy world. And she develops this weird sort of obsession with you know, people on television, famous people in general. And, I mean, these people aren't necessarily famous. There's, like, two football players and a guy who does, like, a shaving commercial. But it's... You can definitely see that this is a very damaged and disturbed but slightly slightly sympathetic character that we're following here. And it's got some, like, really, really weird uh, visual effects whenever it's supposed to be the... And audio effects, too, whenever it's supposed to be her sort of, like, flashback or dream sequences. When we're seeing, like, her repressed memories or her 
sort of fantasy world. Uh, it's on North American Shutter, if you have that. And I think there's uh, a version on Tubi. Just be warned that either case, the transfer isn't usually great and it's kind of grainy, but it's a lot. It's a much clearer picture on on Shutter. Next up, we have Deathbed, the bed that eats, which is. Yeah, this is probably the most underground of all the films on this list. It was the only feature by director George Barry. And it's a very it's a very good example of what I'd say surrealist film is. We follow the narration of an artist whose soul has been imprisoned in a painting and him sort of contending with a demon. Uh and the the story here is that there was a demon who fell in love with a woman and when, you know, they were, you know, in the process, <laughs> she died and he sort of wept tears of blood and that cre- and that basically brought the sort of bed to life and the problem is it feels hunger. So normally whenever someone sleeps in the bed, they just sort of get consumed by it. It's this very weird effect where... We see like foam, sort of yellowish foam come up out of the sheets and just sort of drag people down into a hole. And then we cut to this uh, image of this sort of golden... We cut to this image of like a tank full of liquid and everything's just sort of dissolving into it. It's It's got weird pacing and it... But it doesn't feel too long. And I mean, it's... It doesn't even hit, like, 80-minute mark, so even if the pacing is a little awkward, it doesn't ever really drag on at any points. The only issue I'd have is that it drags a little bit just because most of the story is being indirectly told by the artist sort of wondering as if he's, like, talking to the demon. Uh, I have a link that I'm going to be putting in the episode description. I'll repost it elsewhere on... It's on the Twitter feed at some point uh, for anyone that wants to watch it because I could not, for the life of me, find a lot of physical releases for this. It was literally just on the Internet Archive for the Wayback Machine where it's uploaded in its entirety. Next up, we have Dead and Buried. It's another curious entry of the Video Nasties list. Dead and Buried was listed but was dropped after uh, several distributors across England got Quiddles on obscenity charges. Had a uh, had a lot of interesting uh, people involved in this. We have director Gary Sherman. Uh, he directed the like Brit horror movie Deathline, which we talked about when we did the Donald Pleasance episode. Uh, s- well, technically written by Dan O'Bannon, although there's this whole there's this whole shtick about um, O'Bannon disavow disowning the final script because apparently it wasn't entirely his or wasn't his at all, I guess who, you know, wrote both the original script for alien and wrote and directed return of the living dead. We've got effects by Stan Winston. And what's interesting about dead and buried is that it came out in, I want to say, let me just check my notes, 1981. So, it has a lot of sort of self it has a bit of self-referential humor although it's more played straight not really for laughs 
not directly called attention to, but there's a lot of themes and references to both um, Invasion of the Body Snatchers and Night of the Living Dead. Uh, and on top of that, it's, well, I mean, it's just interesting seeing the sort of, like, element of postmodern horror where there's an awareness of film and film tropes, especially genre tropes. Because this was like 15 years before the first Scream movie came out. Uh, and I mean, some of that's also in Return of the Living Dead that I mentioned. But it's just interesting seeing that. And the film is far more cerebral than I think the reputations of Video Nasty would suggest. But getting on to the actual story... We have the actor James Ferentino playing Dan Gillis. He's a sheriff of the small serene town of Potter's Bluff. And he invest he's investigating a couple of rather gruesome murders, which is unusual for this small town. Usually, uh, as is common with this kind of movie, it's usually an outsider getting murdered by the locals. And then someone has to figure out the sort of weird nebulous conspiracy going around it. And I won't give much away from the movie, but it does like affect him on a very personal level. Um, even though he's not related to any of the victims at all. And as a fun little side note, we have a pre Freddy Krueger, Robert England making an appearance. Next up we have 1983's Angst, which, if you're wondering why I'm pronouncing Angst like that, it's because this is a German, well, Austrian, but, you know, German-language movie. And it's pronounced Angst there. It means fear. Directed by Gerald Cargill. Follows a serial killer, uh, recently released from prison, loosely based off the real-world uh, Werner Nysik. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. He was released after serving the maximum sentence because, unfortunately, Austria had... I don't necessarily think having a maximum sentence is a bad thing, necessarily, but they had no legal insanity uh, ruling at the time. So after serving a sentence, he was just released and not remanded to an asylum. What's really disturbing is that we hear his inner monologue a few times, and the camera work forces us to see, not necessarily like his direct POV as it's like his eyes, but we're following him pretty much the entire movie. And, you know, like I said with the monologue, it's, it's, well, everything is such a great performance, and he's just talking about how he likes seeing, like, the fear in his victim's eyes, where he's contemplating attacking certain people. Uh, there's a scene earlier where he goes to a diner, and he thinks of, like, attacking two of the female patrons, but it doesn't seem to be any obvious um, point where he could do so without getting caught. The violence is kind of extreme, uh, for the time, it actually was banned in several countries across Europe when it came out. Uh, yeah, it's it's just a fucking really, really disturbing movie, but I mean, it does, it does what it sets out to do. It scares the shit out of you. And on top of that, it's got some really, really dissociative music 
courtesy of Klaus Schulz, who is a member of the uh, band Tangerine Dream, which, yeah, give those guys a listen. They're, they're really great. But, yeah, if you don't mind just sitting back for about 83 minutes and just watching us follow this demented sociopath as he bumbles his way through the Austrian countryside over the course of a day or two, uh, give this a watch. It's available on Prime Video for premium subscription. I don't know which one that would be, but you can also find it on Tubi. Next up, we have Edge of the Axe. Now, this one I know is on Tubi and Shudder. Directed by Jose Ramon Larraz, alias Joseph Brownstein at the time. Edge of the Axe follows the exploits of computer whiz kid Gerald and his new girlfriend Lillian in a northern California town as they try to track down an axe murderer. Now, Lillian thinks this reveals about midway through the movie, so I'm not giving much away, that she thinks it has something to do with her uh, cousin Charlie, because apparently she caused something to happen to him that gave him brain damage, and she's worried that he might be unstable and might be doing this. But complicating matters is the rather stark white mask worn by the killer, and it's it's an interesting design. I've joked with a friend that the mask kind of looks like you took like the Michael Myers mask, ripped all the hair out, and then co- covered the mouth, smoothed the mouth over so it looked like he didn't have any features. Uh, yeah, Edge of the Axe doesn't really stand out much. It's a fairly standard, you know, stalk and slasher entry. It's an engaging one, though, if you're already a fan of the genre. It actually has a really interesting twist ending. And the gore effects are... They're they are decent. They're not terrible. There's a pretty amazing one near the at the beginning of the movie where a woman gets murdered in, like, the middle of a car wash. Yeah, the, the killer just comes out from, like, the brushes and then just runs up to the driver's side and just starts hacking her up. It's... I know I sound like a psychopath when I'm describing this stuff, but it's it's really cool. <laughs> Next up is Scary Movie. No, not the one from... No, not the one parodying Scream, and I know what you did last summer. And for that matter, not Scream's original title. Uh, we have an... In, it's an indie horror from 1991 starring John Hawks. We follow him playing a squirrely, jittery, paranoid young man named Warren. He's visiting a carnival haunted house on Halloween with his friends. Warren is already a shy, awkward boy and is even more on edge given the fact that a murderer named John Lewis Baker has reportedly escaped during transit. And Warren is convinced that he is nearby and the local police show up later in the movie and that only encourages his paranoia. The majority of the movie follows Warren as he tries to navigate the haunted house after getting separated from his friends. Again, this is a, it's a weird sort of plotting pace, but it's fairly decent effects for such a low budget. It's got really eerie music and tone throughout the whole thing, and it has a nice twist at the ending again. Next up, we have the Ozploitation classic, Patrick, directed by Richard Franklin, who also directed Road Games with Jamie Lee Curtis and Stacey Keach. Uh, it's... It's basically rear window, but with a semi-truck. It was kind of like an early version of Joyride. Uh, he also directed the... He actually directed Psycho 2, which is a much better sequel than it had any right to be. 
And we open with Patrick, although we don't call him that yet. Well, okay, he is called that at some point, but we just sort of open with him so we don't really know what his deal is. And he's a psychopathic killer who lies in a coma three years after murdering his parents. He basically just got sick of listening to them, I guess. And when the two of them were, you know, doing couple things in the bathtub, he just walks in and throws, like, an electric heater into it. But something happened when the cops tried to apprehend him, and he ends up in a coma. So three years later, there's a new nurse that signs on at the hospital, and we're made aware of the fact that, although he's completely brain-dead, is not only alive and aware, but, although they don't know this, he's he possesses... Uh, telekinesis, you know, he can sense things going on around him even if he can't necessarily detect them with his, you know, mundane senses. He can move things without touching them. He can even sort of like, I guess, astral project in a way because he's affected things that were not even in the hospital room. He becomes kind of obsessed with the new nurse who is the only one who kind of notices the bizarre occurrences that go on. It's the kind of thing that could be really stupid and boring if it had been done worse, but I don't know if it's Franklin's direction or the good writing and acting, or it could be a combination of those things. But it's it's really fascinating, especially just the kind of terror of having something being able to harass you without knowing it, or not necessarily without knowing it, but without being able to defend against it. And the only thing you could do would be to attack something that could get you in a lot of, like, legal trouble. You know, it's not going to look good if you start beating up on a comatose patient, especially if you're supposed to be, you know, a nurse looking after them. But, yeah, this one's on Shudder. No, wait, no, this one's not on Shudder. I actually had to go on Voodoo for this one. Uh, And I had to rent it. But... If you can find it, or if you can find a physical copy, do so. It's really entertaining watch. And last up for today, we have another standard slasher that came out during the glut of slashers that happened from like 80, 81, 82. We have Madman. And this is one of what I like to call urban legend slashers, like The Burning, where... The setup is sort of a camping group sitting around a fire, and the camp leader, um, sort of like this kid's summer camp, basically, and he's sort of doing his usual thing, telling a story of a farmer who went berserk and killed his family, and then escaped a lynching by the townsfolk. Basically, before the cops could arrest him, a bunch of people at the nearby bar just had had a go at him. They ganged up on him, and they strung him up for a tree, and then one of them took the axe that he used as a murder weapon and just buried it into his face. They come back a day later, and the noose is snapped. Mars is not there. Uh, Madman Mars is what they called him. And the bodies of his family went missing. And it's sort of like, and this kind of ties into the urban legend thing, sort of like Candyman or Bloody Mary, the uh, 
the supposed way to get his attention is to, as they said, say his name above a whisper in the woods. And, you know, his old house is like right on the edge of the camp. So it's perfect setting, honestly. It's actually pretty decently scary for such a, what could be dismissed as a really generic slasher. But, you know, again, as with Edge of the Axe, it doesn't stand out much, but it's definitely recommended watch if you're a slasher fan already. Even if it's just a guilty pleasure. I mean, it's decently scary. It's got some creative kills. There's good effects. There's some really interesting staging. There's this one scene where two of the counselors go looking for their friend who went missing. And, you know, they find the truck, but no one there. So they decide to take the truck and go. And when the engine stalls, they look under the hood, and there's just their friend's head, like her severed head underneath. So, you know. This one is, again, on Tubi, and I think it might be on Shutter. I'm not entirely sure. Anyway... That is it for this sampler episode for Weird Wednesday. I'll be back tomorrow with the Masters of Horror series, and then after that, we're going to be talking about the king of body horror, David Cronenberg. Until then, I hope you all have a great night. Stay safe. I'm signing off. Good night. Good night.